As we begin this morning, I couldn't help but think we have a number of young people at camp and, you know, in one sense, they got theirs the last couple of weeks as we talked about children obeying their parents and they don't get to enjoy the parents, you know, kind of getting theirs this morning. So, <laughs> and there's all these parents now are like, you know, oh, great. But no, we're going to take a look at God's Word this morning. And I've entitled my message, Identifying Ch- Parent-Child Frustration Syndrome. We have to make a syndrome out of everything today, so I figured, hey, let's, let's, let's make, you know, the, the frustration that can happen between parents and kids, you know, a, a syndrome. And I don't know exactly what syndrome means, but I think it's, you know, some kind of a setting or whatever. But let's face it, we deal with it, right? So as we just kind of review a little bit, our focus last two weeks has been instructions for children at home. And we searched out the specifics of honoring and obeying our parents, Uh, We actually also looked at even adult children and how that applies to them. So today we flip the script and we examine what Paul says to parents. As we have moved through family relationships, it is clear that these situations don't directly apply to everyone, right? Grandparents, uh, for example, consider this to be, uh, consider these things in relationship to your grandchildren, Or for the rest of us, we can all apply a number of these principles to our daily living, to our relationships. I just want to encourage you to do that. Um, You know, not everyone here is presently married. Uh, We went through marriage. Not everyone here has children at home, uh, you know, and so on. So uh, many of us are no longer our own children at home, sorry. So anyway, but we can apply the different things that we looked at. So... We're going to look at some passages here, but the title of this next section is, What Does Frustrate Mean? And that comes from the, uh, both the Colossians and Ephesians passages we're going to be looking at that, it, that gives the, uh, the word provoke. And so we're going to look at first Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Fathers, do not provoke your children. And then... Uh, well, let's just let's just stay here for just a moment. The Greek word in Colossians is a form of the word strife, contention, or debate. This this word for provoke. Um, here it means to provoke or irritate, to make resentful. These are the words or actions of a parent that that bring about a negative reaction from their children. So, even as we're beginning, the question is is does this characterize your interactions with your children? Does this happen sometimes to where there is a reaction based upon your provoking them, your irritation of them, causing um, a contention? You know, these are the kind of things that we need to be careful of. And we'll talk more about this in just a moment. But then we get into Ephesians 4 in the beginning part of that passage. And it says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Um, In Ephesians, the word is a little bit different. The primary part of the word means to provoke or enrage or frustrate. And I say the primary part of the word because it's a compound word. So the compound word then means to cause to react against you. Right? So fathers... Don't provoke, don't cause your children to react against you. Don't cause them to get angry. So it clearly states that we are not to cause our children to become frustrated with us. All right? Now, Paul seems to indicate in both contexts that this is intentional. I'm sure that there are times we don't necessarily intend for it to happen, but that's what he's talking about. This is an active action that we may do. <clears throat> that a parent is either trying to get a reaction or isn't concerned uh, that why, they're, why they're creating a bad reaction with their kids. That's what we're talking about here. Either they're intentionally doing it or they're not concerned that they are doing it. So let's have an understanding from the beginning here as we talk about this. We, we've just kind of looked at the meaning and we're stu- do, still doing that. But as we think about this, a child's perspective is going to be less mature and biased, right? A young person's view of the world is going to be far less broad and complex, mostly because of their experiences. It's not a criticism of kids. It's just where they're at right now. 
Now, this isn't necessarily sinful, but it can lead to selfish rebellion. This goes back to listening to our parents, right? But on the other hand, an adult might say, for example, these are my children. I'll deal with them as I see fit. And if they don't like it, well, that's their problem. Now, you would be correct that they are your children and you have earthly authority over them. But if you unduly frustrate them, then you are sinning against your children and you're sinning against God, period. So now that we understand that we have taken into account that kids are not always going to have, and, and when I say you know, kids, children, regardless of your age at home, you're not always, not always going to have the most mature perspective. In other words, that you might look, to, look at your parents and say, that's not fair, and then you react against them. That's not necessarily, doesn't mean you're right, okay? At the same time, we can't fall back as parents and say, well, look, this is how I deal with my kids, and it's up to them just to mind me, right? That's not fair either. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do in the very beginning here is understand both sides of this. Children can say, you're frustrating me, you're wrong. No, you might be frustrated. It might not be anything wrong that your parents are doing. Parents, you might be saying, well, if my kids are frustrated, that's their problem. That's not right either, okay? So I've tried to couch this as we move forward, okay? So now that we've kind of established that, I want to look at the modes or the ways that we can frustrate our children. Because frankly, looking at this, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, we've, we've examined these words and seen that they are a little bit different. But it's really the ways that we can frustrate our kids that we are primarily going to be dealing with. I will tell you that we're not necessarily going to have clear-cut chapter and verse for every one of these. These are just some, some generalities and some, some observations that, that I feel like I, I need to make here. But I do think that, that there is definitely some biblical underpinnings to a number of these. And we're going to do our best to go through these. So as we, as we think of, you know, what are the modes of frustration, let's just go ahead and just list a few of them. By the way, there's probably more than what I'm going to be giving you. But it's what I am going to be giving you, right? So first of all, intentional irritation. Negatively tease, mock, or taunt your children. Now, I had a dad that liked to joke around with us, and I liked that, okay? That's not the same thing. This is, this is not a good or fun intent here, okay? Everybody teases around with each other to a degree and things like that. But this is... This is you know, again, an intentional irritation. Keep, keep that overall thing in mind here. I want to look at a verse here, a passage, Proverbs 26, verses 18 19. It says, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. To deceive here means to mislead or betray in some way, possibly through playing on emotions, misleading, or by reversing what was said or meant, right? Oh, that's not what I meant. You took that wrong. I was only having fun. You ever had somebody say that to you before after they do something that's really rude? So verse 18 reveals that this will cause a lot of damage. And this is something that we can do to our children. We, we can irritate them. Yeah, I, I'm just kidding with you. You know what I mean? I'm just ribbing you a little bit. No, not, not if the intent is actually to harm, to irritate, to frustrate. So let me just kind of paraphrase this, and I even have it labeled paraphrase so that we know. A person who maliciously misleads people then claims that they're only playing around is like someone who randomly shoots into a crowd of people. That's what that verse is saying. We know about shooting in a crowd of people these days. We know what kind of carnage that can be. That is what this false jesting so that we can nail somebody is likened to, folks. So there's some real damage here. Some other ways that we can intentionally irritate our children is to exploit our child's weaknesses, right? Hit them 
where they're weakest. Bring that up to them consistently. It's very, very nice. All right. Also, keep touching on a sensitive issue. And I, I want to be careful. I could probably use examples, but I don't want to say something that might actually be a sensitive thing for someone in the room, right? But, it, but it's to, to kind of just point out something says, or maybe, maybe it was something that happened in the past. Maybe it's just something that they're very sensitive about. And especially when we're talking about, you know, teenagers, that can be devastating. Both picking on weaknesses or sensitive subjects are like slapping somebody with a sunburn, right? It's just an irritation, and it's designed to hurt. And then there are times when parents, unfortunately, can flat out purposely frustrate our kids to maintain dominance or control. So these are the things that we need to avoid when it comes to this this irritation okay the second one is burdensome rules please understand again there might be young people in the room that are like yes no more rules that's not what i'm saying okay it's it's burdensome rules we really have to go to the example of the pharisees and again like i say i think there's some principles from scripture you don't always have lined up Parents do this, parents don't do that, right? This is all couched in this idea of don't frustrate your kids. But look at what um, we, we see here in Matthew 23, verses 3 and 4. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, this is the Pharisees, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Now, that's hypocrisy, but Jesus expands on this a little bit more and says... For they, the Pharisees, bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Now, again, folks, I'm not as worried about the hypocrisy right now, although that's an issue that we can have as parents. But it's this idea of, of laying a heavy burden, an undue burden, on our children. And let's face it, we're talking about the Pharisees laying down rules. Do this, do that, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, right? All those different things. Now, of course, children need structure. They need rules. They need direction. And the younger they are, the more that they need, right? Hopefully, if your child is 16 years old at home, you don't have to still tell them to, you know, pull up to the table and eat over their plate or things like that. Or don't throw food on the floor. Right? You know, hopefully they've got, and I'm making fun. I'm saying there's different levels, right, of how much attention that they need. And sometimes, parents, we have a set of rules in place and we don't ease them off because it's easier, right? We've got to be careful about this. But there is a point where rules can become oppressive and overwhelming. A rules for rules sake mentality is not effective, and if, frankly, I'm just going to be blunt, is kind of a lazy way of parenting. All the regulations take the lead rather than the parent actually teaching and nurturing the child through life. You, you, you do a set of standards that we've given you as opposed to engaging in doing life together. Enforcing a list of rules is much easier than engaging, as I said, in more difficult tasks like reasoning and explaining. Right? So we've got to be careful about this. Again, next week we're going to talk more about the positive, folks. But the burdensome rules can be a frustration for kids. Unfounded criticism. It's the idea of fault finding or, or having a critical spirit. Uh, we're going to read um, a passage of scripture here. Turn to, to Luke 6. Luke 6. I'm going to read for you starting in verse 37. Luke 6:37. 
Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Given, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, uh, will, will be in your bosom. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First move, remove the plank uh, from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from the thorns, nor do they gather grapes from the bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Unfounded criticism is not the same as having oppressive rules. Criticism is more of a performance-based judgment. And that is what the Pharisees, again, were guilty of. And so Jesus is speaking to them about the fact that, hey, you know, we, we can have these standards, um, but it's, it's when we are starting to judge other people that, we, that can become a problem. And so we can sometimes be in judgment of our children in the wrong sense, right? So unfortunately, the standard can regularly change or the parents can apply the wrong standard to determine if their children measure up, uh, that, that they measure by. So here's the problem. Parents, you set a standard, but it's not the right standard. You're measuring your kids by the wrong standard, but not by a biblical standard, but by what you think they ought to do, right? Now, again, there's part of life that maybe isn't directly applied to Scripture. You know, for example, what grades you expect and things like that. Okay, you're not going to find a chapter and verse on that. But there's some principles there, okay? Or your standard changes, okay? So it's this idea of just finding fault in them. Um, I, 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 think of, I think of my own parents in this. My dad, to this day, is, is pretty good in math, okay? I mean, he's out of practice. His, his job never really required a ton of math, but he's still really good at math. I was not. Um, I had a, a teacher, some of you in this room will remember, uh, Mr. Baird, I think it was, right? Um, and uh, I was in what was called F Troop. Okay? I didn't know it at the time, but that was an old television show. And F Troop were the papers that were handed out last because you had an F on the top of your paper. I consistently marched with F Troop, okay, all the way through geometry. Uh, I, I have no problem with math. Math doesn't like me. I'm just telling you, okay? I, so anyway, but here's the point. My dad could have, and don't get me wrong, I'm sure I frustrate him sometimes because he was really good at math, but he could have really come down on me on that. He could have developed this standard, this criticism, where, hey, you're not measuring up, boy. And I'll just tell you, I, I didn't. I couldn't. I really could. It was not the way my mind was built. But he was patient with me. Now, he still expected me to get good grades, but I think there was a point where he's like, okay, I'm going to give up on this series. You know, and that's, 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 it was the right thing to do. Okay? So there was a point where I didn't feel the pressure and I just got into other things. But you, you've got your, your minimal requirements you have to have through, through high school, right? So I had to do those. It was a tough time. So anyway, here's the point. Unfounded criticism. The things that we just are going to performance-based criticize our children for, we've got to be careful of. And then the next area is unpredictable tendencies. Now, I'm going to point out several areas that we can be unpredictable in, but again, there are certainly more. Um, we're talking about being erratic or random or not consistent. Okay, and when I mean not consistent, I'm talking about, you know, rash inconsistencies, not the fact that sometimes we're not consistent with what we say or do. That's going to happen. 
But the, the idea of an unpredictable uh, uh, tendency means that our children don't know where we're coming from sometimes, right? They don't know what to expect. And so let's, let's uh, illustrate this a little bit. Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 5 says this, Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment that you judge, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. And why do you think, and we saw this in the previous passage, why do you think, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? And you saw the rest of this. So here's, here's the point here. Um, when we're looking at this, the whole thing is applying a wrong standard, a selfish standard for measuring others. In this case, it's the case of parenting. So one area is discipline. Both the occasion and the force of discipline can be something that is unpredictable. All right? One day something is a problem, then another day it isn't. One time a certain infraction results in a pat on the head with a, okay, don't do that again, please. Right? Another time fire and brimstone fall down from heaven. Right? Uh, how is a young person supposed to understand what can I do, what can't I do? What is going to result in, you know, <laughs> wrath? And, and what is just, okay, let's make an adjustment here. Now, again, I want to go back to a child's judgment is going to be immature. I also want to go back to a parent can be skewed in thinking, well, it doesn't matter how I respond, I'm the parent. Okay, but what we're talking about again here is something that is that, that, that is inconsistent that the child can't follow. And discipline can be one of those areas. Now, what, what can come in? What can be involved in this? It can be the day that we're having. It can be the month that we're having. <laughs> right. It, it can be any number of things. It can be what we just had to deal with prior to that. It can be fatigue having to deal with this again with our child, right? Any number of things. So I'm not going to try to hold a parenting seminar here. I'm not going to try to hold a this is how you do it thing because life is life. But at the same time, it's a matter of consistency. It's a matter of, of not being so erratic that your kids don't know where you're coming from when it comes to discipline, right? I can tell you in our house, if you did something, you got corrected for it. If you did something again, you got corrected for it. If you kept on doing it, the correction ramped up. Now, sometimes you did one thing and the correction was already ramped up. Okay? It depends. But we kind of knew, right? I'm not saying my parents are perfect, but we kind of knew, okay, this one's going to get me in trouble. This one's going to get me in a lot of trouble now. Okay? You know, so it happens. All right. Let's move on then. Uh, sorry about that. We'll get there. <laughs> Temperament. This plays into it as well, but sometimes we can have mood swings or irritability. We can be approachable one moment, then distant another moment, or we can hold a grudge, right? Parents, everybody needs to acknowledge we're people too, right? Parents are people too. And so these things can happen and they can happen with our children. And so again, when it comes to our temperament, if, if we're constantly a moving target with how we respond, with one day we're very pleasant, another day we're kind of crotchety and all these other different things that go on, it's going to confuse our kids. Let's put ourselves for a moment in the place of our children. Think of the situation as having an erratic or volatile boss. Is that someone that's easy to work under? <laughs> okay, uh, he seems to be happy today, or she's being friendly today. I think it's going to be a good day at work, right? Is that how we want our children to be in our homes? You know, they, they put their, their big toe out of their room in the morning. <laughs> What's it feel like today? You know what I mean? Take the parent temperature. Ooh, a little chilly. Better be careful, right? Now, again, like I say, life happens. But it's a matter of 
of how it's directed toward our children. So if our moods or our involvement with them are unpredictable, this creates an undue tension with our kids and it will eat away at our relationship with them. It just will. And frankly, it's also a terrible model to pass down for your children. So then there's the area of favoritism. Um, I want to use the example here of, of Isaac and Rebecca, and we'll, we'll get there in just a minute. But again, I, I, this isn't a, you know, Mel and Lana Kiger were the bestest parents ever. I mean, I think they were, but you can probably find some fault in them. I, I can too, but I'm not going to talk about that now. But the point is this, is that one of the things that, that we actually ver, uh, verbally said back to our parents, all three of us, is that, they did not show favoritism to us. They, they treated us all equally, okay? And it didn't, didn't mean that, that times changed, you know what I mean? I was the oldest, um, you know, so yes, I, ha- I, I experienced a little bit of Stalag 13, you know what I mean? Where, you know, I had a lot more rules than Brian did. Brian, he could do whatever he wanted, he was fine. But... <laughs> all joking aside, the point is, yeah, Life changes a little bit. Experience goes on. But really, we were treated very equally. And, and frankly, we were, cheated, we were treated respectfully as kids for the most part. Okay? So, but at the same time, I, I know this can happen. All right? So let's use the example here of Isaac and Rebecca. First, we're going to talk about where they began. And uh, this, is, this is kind of important. The reason why, I, I can just show you a couple of verses, but we're going to be going through... Genesis, different parts of it in relation to this. So go back to Genesis 24. By the way, I'll just tell you, I found this to be fascinating. Um, I, I have considered this in the past, but not quite as, as, as specific as obviously uh, the, the past week or so when looking at this. Uh, let's go all the way to verse 62. Now, the story behind this is, is that um, they wanted Isaac to have a son, right? But they wanted that son not to be from around the, the, uh, the um, what do you call it? We can call it Gentile at the time, the, the, the heathen nations around them, right? So, so they sent the servant out uh, to, to find this, this uh, wife for Isaac. And that, of course, was Rebecca. But, but as we look at this, here, here's what it says, verse 62. We're picking up on the story as she arrives. Now, Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahai Roy. I would have skipped that if I would have uh, for, for For he dwelled in the south, and Isaac went out to mediate in the field in the evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel, and she came and said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. So again, the servant's reporting back, this is how I found your wife to be, right? Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So here we have um, uh, Re- Rebekah coming willingly Hearing about this man, this the character of Isaac. We have Isaac receiving her as his wife. That's where they began. Now let's look to see where they ended up. Uh, turn to um, the next chapter, chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 26. This is really kind of just in the middle of the story here. And the first came out red, and he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was Jacob. Isaac was 62 years old when he bore them. It says, so the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. 
And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. See that setting up there? They start off as two people who love each other. They have two boys, but we're told right off the bat that they began to show favoritism. Now, we're going to read a little bit of a lengthy passage of Scripture here, um, and I'm going to kind of fill in the blanks here a little bit too, but let's start in Genesis 27, verses 1 through 17. 27, 1 through 17. Now, it came to pass, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see, that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. Now, we'll pause here just for a minute. Now, notice, we started in 24, then we went to 25, we're only in 27. And we have gone from him having a newlywed bride, right, all the way to him basically on his deathbed. That's, that's a lot to unpack in a very short period of time. But there's this thread here. So we're going to pursue this. And by the way, I know you know the story, but we're going to sew some things together with this. Okay, so here it goes. And he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And make me savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, and it's interesting. It says, her son. Isaac was saying, my son, to Esau. Kind of interesting, isn't it? I don't want to read too much into that, but it's there. Saying, indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food for, from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it. And, they, and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah's mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth-skinned man. Never fear, son. Mom knows what to do, right? Perhaps my father will, will feel me and, I, and, and shall seem to be a deceiver to him, <laughs> seem to be, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, get them for me. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made the savory food such as his father loved. And then Rebekah took the choice clothes of his older son Esau, which were with her son in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And then he put the skins of the kids on the goats on his hands and on the smooth parts of his neck. And then he gave the savory food and the bread which he had prepared into the hand of his son Jacob. Okay, now we're going to pause here just for a minute. We're going to go back before this. Then we're going to talk a little bit about it afterward. First off, there was an encounter with, with um, uh, Jacob and Esau where Jacob, some would say tricked, he really more bargained his way into getting the birthright, the, the, the firstborn son's blessings when it came to uh, authority and when it came to inheritance from Esau. Esau comes back from the field doing what he did best, going out hunting. I'm going to die. That's what he told his brother. His brother says, here, I made this stew for you. Or I made, I made some soup here, some lentil soup. You can go ahead and have some if you want. But it's going to cost you your birthright. And the Bible says that Esau despised, considered his birthright nothing. In other words, he was a very man of the moment. And so he ate his soup and moved on. So Jacob now has the birthright. Now, by the way, God was going to bless Jacob. And in spite of all that happened, that is what he did. But you can see how all these convoluted things that people do don't matter. God's will is still going to take place. But here's Isaac, who knows what to do, and he's not doing it right. He's going to bless his firstborn son, well, his Esau, his favorite son. That's Rupert. So anyway, 
He's going to do that. So then we, we go past that and we know that now this is just a flat out deception. I think it's funny, again, that Jacob says, my dad might think I'm a deceiver. <laughs> you, know, you are. You just haven't been caught. You know, you are a deceiver. All right. So uh, mom and son work this all out so that the son gets now the blessing. And we see that this blessing was big, right? It was exactly what God promised, but at the same time, how it was uh, gotten, you know, they, they, they didn't wait on the Lord for all of this. So Esau comes back, and we know that, you know, again, Jacob went in first. So now here's Esau says, you know, what, what happened? You know, because uh, um, Isaac, sorry, a lot of names, he was in shock. It's like, I, I just blessed you. You were just here. No, no, I'm Esau. Right, And so now, with bitter tears, the scripture tells us that Esau is just begging his dad for some kind of a blessing. And I guess you could call it that, but it, it really, there wasn't much left. right? So all this takes place, and we see how terrible it is. But now let's look at the results. Genesis 27, starting in verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father at hand, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Check this out. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah, so he sent and called, she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. <laughs> now, folks, if this isn't a picture of hatred, He's sitting there in his tent going, oh, yeah, it's coming. I'm going to respect my dad, but as soon as our mourning is over, Jacob's dead. And he was comforting himself with murdering, the thoughts of murdering his brother. Okay? So then it goes on. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee my brother late to my brother Laban in Haran and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him then I will send and bring you from there why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day and Rebekah said to Isaac I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth as Jacob has if Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth like these who are the daughters of the land what good will my my life be to me so anyway, all of this to say that we have on display here favoritism to the point where it just completely fractures the family, all right? So what is favoritism? First, we have this. It, it can show itself through being exclusive, right? This, this is just for us, right? I'm not talking about a mom or a dad doing individual things with their kids. I'm talking about where you develop this exclusive relationship at the cost of other relationships within the home. But then, so that's exclusive. It can also be something of an exclusion, right? Where you shut out the other children. So you have this idea, this is just our thing. But then you also have, it's, and, and I kind of misspoke a little bit, it's just us and it doesn't concern you right? Both of those can be a problem. It can also come out in comparison, right? Why aren't you more like, and fill in the blank? Why are you doing this? So-and-so doesn't do that, you know, the favorite kid. Favoritism can also be leveraging one against the other. In general, it is when a relationship with one child is selfish and becomes harmful to the other children. And really, it becomes harmful to all the children. What favoritism is not? It is not having a natural affinity with one of your kids. That's probably going to happen. You're probably going to gravitate toward one more than the other or, or, you know, however many you have, you get the idea. But the point is this. You're going to have some similarities. You're going to have some things that, that you, you like to do together. Some of that can even be, you know, kind of stereotypically gender-based, right? Um, if, if you have a daughter who... You know, you like to fish and your daughter's like, ew, worms, right? You know, it, you're not going to be fishing together or it's going to be a very trying time for both of you, okay? So you just get the idea. 
All right? It's also not spending more time with one over the other. That's not favoritism. In other words, you can spend more time with one than another and not play favorites. As I said, it's impossible to ignore common bonds. We are naturally drawn to the people that are like us. But how do we counterbalance a relationship with a child with whom we have less in common? Now, both the easy and the hard answer is love. It's easy to say you need to love them. But we don't want to confuse this by saying that a child we have less in common with is hard to love. That's not the case either. What we are saying is that love motivates us to do the more challenging work of better engaging with our child who we don't naturally click with. So let me ask you a question. We're talking to, I'm talking to married couples at this point. When you got married to your soulmate, right? I'm not making fun of that word. I'm just saying it gives the idea like there was this seamless joining of two people together and you just held hands and skipped along, you know, through the flowers and butterflies, right? There were differences, correct? There were things that you kind of had to do that maybe you didn't do before. And maybe you even grew to like them. It wasn't your whole life. That's, we don't get married like that. So you have a child. And there are things that you have in common with them as you do all of your children. But there are some things that they like that they're not necessarily your thing. Love says, I'm going to make them my thing. I'm going to engage with them on their emotional level, on their, their interest level, and all those other things. They don't think the way I do. That's okay. I'm going to modify myself. I'm going to adapt. I'm going to get to know them. I'm going to love them. So it's not, I love them less. It's, I engage in loving them differently because they're different. All right? Am I being clear on that, folks? Okay, all right. You'd tell me if I wasn't, right? Okay. All right. So these are the different ways that we can frustrate our kids. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to go back here. There we go. Hang on. When we intentionally irritate them, when we put burdensome rules upon them, again, not that we don't direct them, but it burdensome rules, when there's unfounded criticism where we're just kind of just zapping them, right? We're holding them to a standard that isn't really real or right. And then, so, so again, rules, that's just you, you do this. Criticism, that's more performance-based, all right? Then we go to the unpredictable tendencies. We talked about several of those things. The only reason why I wanted to talk about favoritism is, is just because there was this beautiful example in Scripture. We talked about that more so. But all of these things where we're just, you know, I don't know where you're coming from, Mom. I don't know where you're coming from, Dad. Where, you know, where are you today, you know? Um, how, come, how come this is now a really big deal and it wasn't before, you know? Um, you, you seem really cheery and everything, and now, man, I don't know what to do around you. You know, all these different things. Again, like I say, life happens, and life happens with your kids, and life happens in the home, and you're going to have a bad day. But it shouldn't be so reflective that, you're, that your kids are like, man, what's going to happen? All right? So what happens as a result? I'm sorry, i got to move forward a little bit here. Yeah. How does frustration harm our kids? Sorry, we're going a little long this morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be moving here, okay? We've already shaped our conversation to consider that no parent and no child is perfect. We are fallen creatures with a tendency to be selfish. It's just who we are. Even when we are in Christ, we still have that tendency to take care of self. So with that said, we've tried to gain a greater understanding of the meaning of frustrating our children and how it can manifest itself. If a child is exposed to inconsistent frustration, there will be consequences. They simply can't come out of that home unscathed. 
right? It's going to happen. I witnessed a similar situation where a number of young people in our church, previous ministry, were enrolled in a very strict Christian school. A lot of rules, not so much love. Many of them struggled in their Christian walk during and after high school. Some are still far from the Lord today or even deny Christ. Others worked through their issues over time. So this is what I want you to take from that situation. I remember sharing my observations many years later to a former teen. I commented that based upon her life, based upon what I could observe, I told her, I said, I, I, th- I thought that she was the only one that came out of the school unsa- unscathed, right? That she somehow got out and was leading a pretty consistent Christian life. She very quickly and firmly said to me, no, I didn't. All the loveless rules and regulations, the favoritism and the hypocrisy that they saw took their toll, even though even though I had not observed that in her life. So as we think about that, folks, it's, it's difficult on the kids. All of these things are going to become an irritant and create frustration for our children. The harm is caused to the child and to the child's relationship with the parent. So what kind of harmful effects are we talking about? Again, we're going to try to move through this. Oh my goodness, what did I just do there? Sorry about that, guys. I got... (laughs) I think I... Too quick on my fingers there. There we go. Okay, we're here. All right. First one is confusion. All right. James 3. Don't ask me how I got back to that, but I did. James 3. If you'll... Oh. Okay. That's okay. It wasn't, it wasn't me. It was this... Let's see. This happened one time before. Okay. James chapter 3. Just get there with me, please, and I'll get up to where we need to be. I did it again. Okay, I don't know what's I don't know what's going on. I have the slides here, but they're not showing up. Okay, James chapter three. I'll have to read some of them for you. There must be some kind of a glitch where it's it's clicking off of my slideshow. Beginning in verse thirteen, guys. Beginning of verse thirteen. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish, self, self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Those wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and selfish seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, we're not talking as much about uh, hypocrisy and some of those other things as much as, and and this bitter envy as much as the self-seeking. Self-seeking, selfishness produces confusion, all right? This is a general passage. This isn't talking about parenting. This isn't even necessarily talking about just church relationships. This is talking about, this is what happens in general. So as we apply this to our parent-child relationship, this, the syndrome that we have, right, a frustration, James emphatically states that selfishness creates confusion. So when a parent doesn't have the best interest of the child at heart, it is bound to create confusion in the child. The next one, which I know you can't see, <laughs> but I got to see it myself, is... This is really frustrating. I don't know what in the world happened here. All right. Uh, We're going to have to go plan B here. Colossians 3.21. I do not know what's going on with this. Colossians 3.21. We've already read that 
uh, this morning. And it says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What we're talking about here, folks, is a crushed spirit, a crushed spirit. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22, talks about this. And again, this is, this is the damage that uh, these different things can cause. Proverbs 17, verse 22, tells us, A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. So this idea of discouragement is a disheartened or a broken spirit with the child. And when you think of the different things that we talked about, we can see how that can take place. The other thing that we can see is bitterness or anger. If your child has a whatever outlook on life, whenever you try to talk to them about something, they may not understand the point of your instructions and your discipline. It may be something that's burdensome or something that is erratic. Another indicator that there is a problem is if they're consistently angry and reacting against you. Now, again, that can just be flat out open rebellion. You've got to take a look at your heart and theirs. But Paul warned us again about this in Ephesians 6. As we are reminded of that passage, it tells us that, that um, uh, we can, pro can provoke them to wrath, Right? So, it may, again, it may not be rebellion against authority as much as just it's coming out of frustration. And then lastly, I want us to think about this area of anxiety. We saw that there's confusion, there's a crushed spirit, a bitterness or an anger that can, that can take place, this, this seeming rebellion, and then anxiety. Proverbs 12.25. Proverbs 12.25. says, anxiety in the heart of a man causes depression. Let's pause here for a minute. Anxiety in the heart of a child causes depression. There are so many things that make kids' lives that make them uneasy and fearful. That's part of growing up, right? They don't know the world as well as the adult does. They're not equipped to handle some of those things. That's what we're supposed to help them through our parenting should not be a source of anxiety. That's going to frustrate them. So let's conclude here. These injuries can affect many areas of a child's life. They will certainly affect their present life, but they can also become a long-term issue or even a lifelong issue. So what can we do about it? Obviously, preventing by avoiding frustrating your kids is the first and best way to go, right? Stop it from happening. But, and by the way, I just want to say, this can include grandparents. This can include those who are aunting and uncling. This can include those who are teaching and pastoring. Any and all of us, with our influence with children, we've got to be careful not to do this. But if we see areas where we're frustrating or have frustrated our children, whether actively or passively, then we need to confess and turn away from that sin. It's just that simple. It's not my way or the highway. It's not I'm the parent and they're the kid. We have a command here that we need to abide by. We need to follow up by being very open and honest with our children about our sin and go about making it right. Folks, that's not easy. Now, it may be one instance or it may cover a childhood where you've had a pattern and now they're out of the home. Either way, I want to encourage you, do what you can to make it right. If you know, man, you know, I, I made life difficult for you in these specific ways, and I, I'm sorry for that. Right? Do it. A relationship that maybe needs repairing now, or maybe not, but you still need to do it, but a relationship that needs repairing now, whether your children are in the home or not, is never going to get fixed if you don't apply the tools to do it.
And, and, and a transparent honesty is one of the best ways to start. Now, what if they continue to reject that? At a certain point, that's their problem, folks. That's, that's their decision-making, not yours. All right? There is an element of forgiveness that is still there that needs to take place. But I want to give you an example that, um, and I'm not going to give you a lot of details. I'll just tell you this. My dad, uh, uh, probably more than once, maybe went a little too far in his discipline. I know this might not be easy for my dad to hear, but the end is good. One time, he disciplined me a little too far. And one of the things that I have never forgotten, never forgotten, is when he apologized to me in front of everybody that was there. That took a real man to do that. That took a, a loving dad to do that. Okay, he blew it. But he said he was sorry. Man, I'll tell you what. I don't remember. Well, maybe I remember a little bit. But <laughs> the discipline part. <laughs> but I more so remember the healing that took place. Um, yeah. When things are current, that's when it's best to take care of these things. But even if they're not, folks, we need to to do the right thing in our relationships. Now, again, this is really heavy on the side of what not to do because that's where we're at. Next week, we're going to talk about some of the more positive things that you can do as a parent. All right. Now, I could have led this with, with this. I'm going to end with this. I, I have always been very transparent with anybody that I talk with in that I don't have any experience as a parent. Everything that I've given you today is from the word of God or from what I have observed, either from my own parents, right, or just from 18 years of youth ministry and 30-plus years of working with children and parents and things like that, right? I've watched it happen. And so I'm not trying to, to, to give you give myself credibility I, I'm, I'm telling you honestly that I, I, if you want to just talk about, okay, how did you raise your kids? I don't have any credibility. But that's why we're going to talk about things from the Word of God. That's why we're going to stick there, and it's not just going to be Pastor Scott's advice. Okay? Now, yes, some of those things, again, are observations of life, but I'm telling you, what I gave you was truth from the Word of God. And so I want to encourage you, don't frustrate your kids. If you have, make it right. Young people, or even adult children, right? Man, be ready to forgive. Understand, like I say, that your parents are who they are. They're sinful just like you. And, and, and move forward together. And we'll talk about, again, some of the more proactive things that a parent can do next week. Let's look to the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we have explored this, um, it's, it's just not always easy to hear. There, there isn't a parent here that hasn't failed, sometimes big time. What we're talking about here is a pattern. Whether an erratic pattern or, or a mean pattern or any number of things that, that just bring out the frustrations of a kid and... and, and Boy, we have to be honest, Lord, as, as we're looking at this, you're not justifying rebellion, but at the same time, you're acknowledging there's going to be some fruit to this. And I, I don't see you faulting the kid. And so, Lord, as we just soul search and as we consider what we need to do, I pray that we can decipher between difficult decisions that we've had to make um, sometimes even not so pleasant uh, circumstances we've had to work through. And when we truly have just missed the mark, or if we are missing the mark, if we see a pattern in our life, Lord, may, may we repent of that. May we change our heart and mind for our relationship with you and also for our relationship with our children so that we don't frustrate them. Lord, we thank you for your pattern as our loving Heavenly Father is perfect. 
And we pray that we will line up under your guidance, under your word, and glorify you through it. In Jesus' name, amen.